0: Welcome back to another episode of the Rural Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Adam Albrich, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Peter Eimel of Pine Lake Wild Rice Incorporated. Welcome Peter. Thank you, Adam. Great to be here. The cultivated wild rice industry in the U.S. is relatively young as it really got started in the 1950s here in Minnesota. However, local indigenous populations have long harvested this crop and still continue to do. An interesting fact that is that wild rice is the only cereal grain native to North America. What sets wild rice apart from everything else in your mind? Being a specialty crop with not a
1: lot of acres cultivated and the short history of domestication of the crop, it really presents a challenge from a research standpoint, from a production standpoint. So. What's of most interest to me is the fact that, that the book is far from being written. There's still more art than science. We're doing a lot of our own experimenting on farm, and the challenges are are numerous.
0: On average, Minnesota produces between 4 and 10 million pounds of cultivated wild rice every single year. Could you talk about the local industry and what it means to the industry as a whole? So the three primary growing regions for cultivated wild rice in Minnesota are, are the
1: area we're in today. The sort of the Clearbook-Convict area, Clearwater County, uh, Eastern Polk County. There's another area up on the east side of Red Lake, washkish area, northern Beltrami County, and then uh, down near Aiken, Minnesota. And if you look at a, at a map of the economics of, of Minnesota, those are three of the poorer areas of the state. And what wild rice alone brings into those areas is about $60 million a year annually in economic development, and along with about 640 part-time and full-time employment opportunities from working from fertilizer through the farms all the way through the processing industry. So it's it's a real significant impact to our
0: local areas and our local economies. I've looked at statistics that show, at least on nationally, that California and Minnesota kind of go head to head in the wild rice industry. So Minnesota really is a big player when it comes to this crop. Yeah, yeah, it's got the longest history, the
1: original domestication efforts, the longest running research efforts, California got into the industry in the late 80s, and there's two growing areas there, one in the Sacramento area and one up in Northern California. And right now, there's enough consumption in in the world where both Minnesota and California production are necessary in order to meet the demand. Having a product that has almost an indefinite shelf life you can rack, rack up inventories pretty quickly, which we're working through uh, somewhat in the industry right now, but, but both production areas are probably necessary in order to meet, the, meet the, what
0: we see as the upcoming demand. Is there much of a difference in the actual grain itself, whether it's grown here in Minnesota or in California, or I've even seen it in Texas? Yeah, Not that I know of, Yeah, I, I couldn't decipher any difference. So. so nutritionally speaking, what does this grain have to offer?
1: It's very high in antioxidants, which talked about a lot. It's gluten- free, which is important in this time frame. In comparison to white rice, in order to make white rice shelf stable, the bran layers taken off. And so basically what you're left with is a starch with, with wild rice. That outer bran layer is still intact, so there's a lot of micronutrients there in, in, in that bran layer that are maintained versus some of the other, some of the other rice
0: rice species. Now, given that it's found here in northern Minnesota, it must be a hardy crop. What is the ideal climate for something like this? The primary
1: issue with, with wild rice is that it needs to go through a cold dormancy, which we have ample of here in Minnesota. And it, and it needs to sit in those cold temperatures, break its dormancy so that it's, it's ready to, to germinate in the spring. So that's what it's done for thousands of years in the area and uh, so the so the
0: climate here is is well because it's evolved here over time is it's well suited. So there aren't too many problems on the cold side of things, but then does that mean the heat presents a challenge to it? Occasionally, if you get some really hot summers, you can have some problems with pollination,
1: but those are those are pretty isolated. So so it's 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 well adapted for the upper midwest particularly, you know, and it and it grows consider considerably
0: farther north up into Canada as well. So now with many crops, you have a planting season, you have a growing season, and then a harvesting season. Could you walk us through what this process looks like for wild rice? So when you're establishing a new wild rice field,
1: we do all of our planting primarily in the fall. It's a broadcast planting along with an incorporation. When possible, we'll try and flood those fields in the fall or, or certainly in the spring, it needs the water in order to uh, go through its, its extended germination. And in early growth stages, uh, over the course of the summer, you're doing some fertilizer applications, occasionally some fungicide applications. and then uh, it's, it's growing up from you know, into a plant that can be six, seven, eight feet tall. Meanwhile, from a management standpoint, we're trying to bring the water levels down in the field so that we can get in with somewhat conventional equipment. And we usually start harvest right before Labor day. Uh, This year was a little late with the colder summer, so we just finished up a couple of days ago. So I usually get started right around Labor Day and finish up maybe the 12th to the 15th of September.
0: So in preparing fields, can you take a regular soybean field and turn it into this or (laughs) vice versa? Do you turn wild rice fields into soybean fields?
1: In our rotation, we do rotate with soybeans and also potatoes. But what you need to have is access to a lot of water and a consistent water source year in and year out. And you also have to have the infrastructure built up around the fields in order to hold that water. So we've got a surface water source that runs through the farm. We're generally taking water from that source during high flow periods, helping to mitigate downstream flooding. And then we're holding that water and releasing it over the course of the summer. So uh, for the most part, helping to stabilize the water flow in our water source.
0: I want to talk about water in greater detail in a little bit, but you mentioned talking about planting season and things like that. What's unique about this crop when it comes to planting? Because people think about the water, but it also needs other elements to it. So for us, the planting is, is establishing that stand in the first
1: season. And then if we're going to maintain a field and wild rice production for multiple years after that which normally will will produce wild rice on a field for four to five consecutive years in our rotation you don't reseed that every year because of the short history of domestication the the mature kernels as they mature tend to fall off and that provides your seed base for the next year if you go far enough back in history all the cereal grains used to do this but ten thousand years of domestication with with wheat and barley is eliminated those genetic traits Uh, in the last 50 years we haven't been able to do that yet with wild rice but that's work in progress so it may seem great that that we don't have a seed cost per se and that extra step but the unfortunate part of it is is that you if you have a year with bad weather and a lot of wind it's really hard to control your stand density and then you also get over time a real significant genetic shift towards more and more shattering the seeds that stay on the head or the plants that maintain their seed are the ones that are getting harvested and sent off to the processor. And unfortunately, the seed that's falling on the ground has your worst genetics. So after four or five years, you see a real genetic shift into, into riskier and riskier production from a seed loss standpoint. So then we'll rotate out, try and clean that seed bed up, move into our other rotation crops, and then move back into wild rice after four or five years.
0: Does that make your yield vary greatly? Greatly, yes. So you can, you can certainly keep
1: that, that production going, but the biggest problem is is that year in and year out, you've got more risk. And so part of that's depending on, uh, on market prices and
0: part of that's dependent on your risk tolerance. When thinking about harvesting, obviously you need a harvester. And when you're involving water, is that, does that change what the machine itself looks like?
1: Yes, the the functional aspects of the machine, the threshing components are still there. We happen to use uh, Case IH combines, but there are a lot of John Deere combines in the industry. We maintain six machines for the acreage that we need to cover. Of those six, two of them are on rubber tracks, which are fairly common. A lot of people have seen Case IH's uh, rubber track machines from the factory. We have two like that, and then we also have four set up that we've modified on steel tracks. So that process involves... Stripping down all the drive components, taking all the tires and transmission and everything out, and then running them on on to what would look like bulldozer tracks, one for each side. So they'll go where uh, where you can't walk. Hopefully that's not necessary, but in a year like this, sometimes it is. After harvest is completed, what happens next? For us, it's a couple of tillage passes trying to deal with the residue. When you've got an eight foot six to eight foot tall plant, you've got a lot of material you need to deal with. So in the process of of doing that, we've got uh, some disking and some vertical tillage to try and reincorporate that residue. Part of what makes our our rotation work well is that we've got real high organic soils. We're doing everything we can to try and maintain those those high organic levels. So we do that, we do some fall fertilizer application and then if possible and hopefully in a year like this, we've had ample water start to get uh, some fields flooded and prep for next season.
0: So from the actual grain side, after it gets harvested, does it need to be processed very much before you get to that kind of final stage where it ends up on people's dinner tables? Very much so. The moisture rates are real high, usually in the mid-30s, so it's not at all a stable product.
1: Processing needs to usually happen within 7 to 10 days of harvest in order to maintain maximum product quality. Processing is a whole separate step from what we do, but They've been able to extend their processing seasons some by using uh, silage bags. So they'll go ahead and put a significant amount of that product into silage bags, which stabilizes it and allows them to extend their processing season out and still maintain optimal product quality.
0: So what type of markets exist for the finished product? So the bulk of
1: the product itself, probably 85%, is blended with wild rice and other grains. So what you'd see in uh, an Uncle Ben style blend would be the traditional product that most people are comfortable with or seen on the shelf space. Less than 10% of the product is what I'm accustomed to, which would be a one pound bag of, of wild rice. So, so not, very, not very many people, particularly outside of the upper Midwest or Minnesota, are, are familiar with that product. Growth is, is somewhat good, being gluten-free, and uh, with uh, the advent of, of the native grains category, which we fit well into, growth has been, been good. We're looking to continue to expand that growth. I would say in the last 10 years, this is a little bit outside of, of my purview, but with our discussion with the processors and marketers, that the bulk of the growth in the last 10 years has been in, in Europe. That's been a real interesting area for, for this product and uh, they're expanding beyond that now
0: so it really does have a good potential for additional exports that's that's what we're hoping the flip side of of
1: enjoying the native grains category and that expansion has been that uh, shelf space that used to just have a handful of products on it and that we were a somewhat dominant player has now become really crowded but that's that's a good thing it's a good healthy product it's it's got a lot of good uses and uh and it tastes great so it's it's a fun product
0: to grow and and talk about from that standpoint too so to give listeners a little bit of an idea of a wild rice operation and what it looks like how many acres would you say a smaller farm typically has how many are we talking for kind of like a medium size or middle of the road and what would a large scale operation look like oh that
1: that's an interesting question because that's been really fluid over the history of the industry, but. Right now, we're looking at about, oh, 25 to 30 operations in Minnesota, varying anywhere from maybe growing 100 to 200 acres all the way up to as much as 25 to 2700 acres. And I, I couldn't get you any sort of, sort of a curve on, on where all those operations fit into the mix, but people have found ways <laughs> to, uh, to make all those, those different sizes work. Probably the biggest limitation in, in production right now is primarily because of the cost of putting in the infrastructure and drainage tile and diking and ditching and having water access, that the areas that would be best suited to production are, are not allowed to expand in production because of wetlands regulations in, in Minnesota. So you're not allowed to develop those areas anymore. So the acreage that's really viable for, for wild rice production in Minnesota is somewhat capped
0: right now. And that feeds perfectly into what we kind of alluded to earlier, but water is very critical to this industry. What are the concerns that you guys have regarding water? I think Minnesota has always done a real good job
1: of, of maintaining one of its best resources. We report every year how much water we use. We monitor that regularly. Anytime uh, the surface water source that we use drops below a certain level, we're limited in what we can take, and there's a level at which we can't take any at all. But for the most part with us, either pulling water late in the fall or very early in the spring, like we talked about before, we're pulling water out of the system when uh, when we're at really high flow levels, generally. And areas downstream of us, our water source goes to the Red River and then goes north to Hudson Bay. And so a lot of spring flooding issues in the Grand Forks area and further north all the way up to Winnipeg. So from our perspective, even though we're not making much of a dent in that us taking water and 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 holding that water at that time frame and releasing it over the course of the summer is is fits in well with the flood mitigation that's happening downstream in years like
0: that do you have to form really good relationships with local water districts and also department of you know natural resources yep all of our permitting is done through the department of natural
1: resources the monitoring of the river and our in and, and our daily reporting is handled through our Red Lake Watershed District, which I feel like we've got a great relationship with over the last 40 years. They've been great to work with and and do a very good job of, of helping us in, in getting prepared for coming season and right down to working with us on a day-to-day basis.
0: So there's been an increasing amount of certain types of algae popping up on lakes and streams in the upper Midwest. Is this a potential problem for those who grow rice or have you noticed any issues along those lines?
1: years ago algae was a bigger problem our our product or wild rice plant doesn't stay in what's called the floating leaf development stage for very long it it stands up and it gets aerial and it gets up above the water so once it's up above the water the algae developing underneath doesn't generally cause much of a problem but it, it's always something we're monitoring it's always something we're con, we're concerned about and what's happened over the course of time is is when you're growing wild rice on wild rice on wild rice which was a which was much more common 30 and 40 years ago those sorts of annual problems become bigger and bigger now that most of the farms are operating on a rotation they're monitoring their nutrient levels much better things like algae are under much better control
0: so is it susceptible to any type of disease then well the
1: fact that it's native to this area means that it's evolved over time with all of the local pests so versus having moving the production to a different part of the country. Everything, every insect, every fungus that has evolved along with the crop is still here. And we still deal with that on a, on a regular basis. There's multiple different fungal infections that can happen as one would expect in a flooded high humidity sort of environment. We've got a couple of insect pests, blackbirds can cause a problem. So there's everything that's lived off of wild rice for the last,
0: Several thousand years is still here, still living off wild rice, and the bird issue is kind of interesting. Do you do anything to prevent birds? Is there literally anything you can do? No, there's
1: not. You know maybe when there was more farms, you could try and motivate them and and get them moved to somebody else's farm. but once once they're in, they've found a place that that's where they want to be, and that's where they're going to stay.
0: Now, you alluded to earlier that due to the size of the industry, it being relatively new, you guys do a lot of experimenting and things like that here on the farm. But do you partner with any type of universities for research at all, or does this industry partner at all?
1: Yeah, there's a long history at the University of Minnesota with wild rice being the state grain. It's the logical place to be to be doing research. We've had a you know a long history dating back oh, over 50 years of uh, breeding research, soil science, pathology, entomology, extension work. Over time, due to budget constraints and some other issues inside the university, that that research group has been pared down. About two years ago, we just hired a new breeder uh, to focus on wild rice, which has been extremely helpful. The seed, unlike wheat or barley or something like that, where you can take a bag of it and put it on the shelf and maybe 10 years come back and, and draw on those genetic resources. If you don't grow, the seed needs to be stored in water or it needs to be grown out every year. So you don't have that bank that you can go back to all the time if 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 you decided that you made a mistake several years ago in your selections so having a breeder back on staff to maintain that material on a regular basis and continue to make those advances is is critical for the health of the industry in the in minnesota
0: so is there any exciting research or partnerships that it's going on right now that kind of has you guys well interested? all of the development the variety developments
1: done in conjunction with with the breeder, we're meeting with them on a regular basis to talk about our concerns, and they're trying to adapt the germplasm to to meet those concerns. All of, since there's no seed industry, nobody like a pioneer is interested in dealing with a crop that just has the few acres and the challenges that we do. So once the breeder develops a line that they think has potential, all of the the expansion of that variety and the release throughout the industry of that variety is handled by our, our grower group or our grower council, the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Research and Promotion Council. So that's the best way to distribute that material out to, to the rest of the growers in the state. And so that process has been fine tuned over time, but seems to
0: work very well. So what you're saying is when it comes to genetically engineered seeds and stuff like that in other industries, it could, I mean this industry is very native and it's very natural at this stage.
1: Very much so, and I don't see that ever changing. There's some protections uh, written into statute by the legislature that make sure that there's no genetic engineering of the crop. I don't think it's in our best interest as an industry. And the other issue is we're right here in the heart of of its center of origin. So all the all the genes that are that uh, that we should need to advance the crop are out there the fact that the gene now we're getting kind of down a rabbit hole but the gene frequencies that we're interested in are just slightly different than the gene frequencies that exist in the lakes and rivers in the state but other than that that's that's the only real change in the crop
0: so what would you say is the biggest opportunity looking forward for this industry
1: i think for the first time in a long time the industry's somewhat stable the operations that are growing wild rice are have found a rotation that works for them. Almost all the operations have the next somebody involved in the next generation coming up, which is which is exciting. So having having that continuity, particularly that continuity of, of production, but that continuity of information flow. Since again, the book has not been written on this crop, so growing up in it. You, you sort of learn, learn the hard way what the, what the positives and negatives are. So maintaining continuity in these operations and the continuity in production and so that our processors have got uh, ample, ample product, our marketers have got ample product, occasionally leads to a glut like we're dealing with right now. So prices are a little lower than I'd like to see, but it's the continuity and the stability that the industry hasn't really had before that's there right now. And I'm excited about that.
0: Peter, if people are interested in learning more about wild rice, where can they go? Are there resources out there for them? Absolutely. All the growers in the state of Minnesota are members. uh,
1: We have a checkoff that's paid in, based off of production, to the Minnesota Cultivated Wild Rice Research and Promotion Council. For anybody that goes to the state fair, I know it. It uh, we got a long ways to go before we get back there again, but they always maintain a real popular booth there, giving out samples and uh, and trying to answer questions for the public. But they've also got a website mnwildrice.org that answers a lot of the questions in greater detail, along with along with better pictures than I can than uh, than my thousand words can can put across via microphone.
0: So, well, Peter, thank you very much for an insightful conversation today. We really appreciate it. Great, thank you, Adam. That's Peter Eimel of Pine Lake Wild Rice Incorporated. That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Rural Perspectives podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com.